Hey, good morning again. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're thankful to be able to gather together. If you would just join with me, let's uh, just open this time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we just thank you for the opportunity that you've given us uh, to know you uh, and to understand you. And God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit that makes known its truth to our hearts and to our lives. Uh, God, we recognize that we are one of many, and so God, we just lift up the churches uh, around us that are also preaching and worshiping your name. And Lord, we just ask your blessing on uh, your uh, church around the world. God, we ask your blessing on uh, churches in St. Charles and in surrounding areas. We ask your blessing over the church in America, and we ask for your blessing over the church uh, around the world that is worshiping you uh, uh, at some point in time over the course of this weekend. And so, God, we ask that your name would be lifted up, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. To the last syllable of recorded time, and all of our yesterdays have lighted fools, the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Maybe you're familiar with this stanza, it is taken from the play Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5. And Macbeth, of course, if you're familiar, is reflecting on the death of his love, Lady Macbeth, and the impending death of himself. And so I wonder this morning, as you reflect on that a little bit, do you think that Macbeth is right? Is life nothing but a shadow uh, is it nothing, uh, uh, but uh, is it a life that has no substance and no meaning? Is life just some story that's told by an idiot that is signifying nothing? You know, writers and philosophers have wrestled with this since uh, time really even began to try to answer this question. This morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 17, and if you want to turn with me there, you can. Uh, there's also a little bit of a, an insert in the bulletin. If you want to follow along, uh, you are welcome to do that. Um, but we want to look at uh, this prayer that we see in John 17. It is Jesus' final prayer, and it deals with, and I think it answers this question about meaning and significance in life. Jesus deals with the meaning of life in the context of prayer. And in essence, Jesus says this is the meaning of life, and that is this, that you have relationship with God through himself, his son, Jesus Christ, that that is the meaning of life. And so this prayer, commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer, serves as the conclusion to what we call the upper room discourse. It's chapters 14 through 16. And it seems to me at least that this prayer was something that Jesus said 
out loud that part of the intent was for it to be overheard by the disciples and probably to that end to also be recorded so that you and I would have it today. And so, of course, one purpose of this prayer was to bring comfort and to bring hope uh, to the troubled hearts of the disciples. We've talked about that a lot as we've gone through these chapters in John. There was this troubling element about the departure of Jesus and the persecution, the impending persecution that was coming. And so it was to provide comfort and hope. And in that regard, it might have been this prayer might be the most significant and effective moment in all of the teaching that Jesus gave in 14 through 16. All of the things that we've been looking through, this prayer is maybe the most significantly effective moment of that teaching time. But while this passage brings comfort and hope to troubled hearts, it also serves as a final thesis of the life and ministry of Jesus himself. And it answers the big questions of what it means to know and to follow Christ. In, in sort, of, sort of theological terms, uh, we see in this prayer aspects of justification, sanctification, and glorification. It, it is this idea of coming to Christ and being justified, being declared righteous in the eyes of God. It is being sanctified, set apart, and made holy as we mature in Christ and glorified is that when we are brought to completion, that we are perfected in the presence of the Father. And so we see these aspects laid out in this prayer. And so uh, we want to look at this together this morning. In this prayer, Jesus prays basically in three different sections. He prays for himself, he prays for the disciples specifically, and he prays for the future believers. Uh, this is one of the cool passages where Jesus is specifically praying and speaking to directly you and I today. Now, all of Scripture is that, right? All of Scripture is for us and speaks to us in our day-to-day. But there is something unique about this because Jesus is making a point to show that he has you and I on his mind in this moment, in this passage And so we want to look at it together. I'm actually going to divide those three sections into four sections. We're going to split out uh, his prayer of the disciples into two different sections uh, to look at two different aspects of his prayer. But we want to do that together. And so in this first section, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, we see the very first aspect of this, and that is a focus on the glory of God. Sorry about that. The, The title of this message is, Uh, the prayer of glory. And we see the glory of God in this prayer throughout the whole thing, really. And so I hope that it will be an encouragement to you and I. And so this first part, we see a focus on glory. Verses one through five say this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And so this is a great beginning to this prayer, right? And it is a focus on glory. He lifts up his eyes. There is this attention that is being drawn to himself first and foremost. And it is specifically on his glory. Now, the dominant theme of this passage, and really the whole prayer, is glory. And, and I don't know how you feel about that, but glory, if we think about honor and beauty, it, it seems maybe a little bit odd that Jesus, who is God, who is the King of Kings, would pray for more glory for himself. But as we look at it closely, there are three observations, I think, about his request that sort of put the matter into a different light. And so I want to bring those up with us. The first is, is that Jesus requested that he be glorified in order to bring further glory to the Father. In other words, the purpose of his glory, asking for more glory, was so that the Father would receive more glory. Jesus' request was not a request to receive glory independently from the Father but to be glorified and to praise the Father. The prayer was in alignment with the will of God. You might say, well, yeah, of course it is. That makes a lot of sense. That's kind of common sense. But it's important to note this. Why? Because it was not the case with Satan. Satan operated very differently. That his request was actually to usurp the glory and the position of God. Isaiah chapter 14 speaks of Satan in this way. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. That's speaking about Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See, that was Satan's prayer. Satan sought glory from himself, for himself. He sought to take the position in the glory. He wanted to receive glory independent of God. But Jesus is very different. And he prays for glorification in order to exalt the Father. So I think that right away there is a point of application for each one of us. See, every prayer should consider who gets the glory. When you pray, who's going to get the glory from the benefit and blessing of your prayer? Is our request for our own good, right, our own glorification, or is it for the glory of the Father? I wonder at times how many of our prayers might get immediately eliminated if we were to remove any of the aspects that were for our own good and glory. Secondly, Jesus requests the glory which rightfully belonged to him. Rightfully belonged to him. In verse 5, Jesus says, And now, the Father, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When, when Jesus, right, who's the second person of the Godhead, left heaven to become God incarnate, he temporarily sets aside his glory. 
And, and this was even illustrated in just a couple of chapters before this when he washed the disciples' feet. Jesus did not, however, lay aside any part of his deity, uh, but rather his perfect humanity, he lived a perfect life, was added to his deity. When the work on the, of the cross was completed, the glory that was rightfully his, that was momentarily laid aside, was then going to be given back to him. And this is what Jesus is praying for. He understands that he is going to take up on himself once again his rightful glory. Philippians chapter 2 speaks of this. In verses 6 through 8, it says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was his rightful glory. And, and so we see he's requesting glory so that the Father is exalted. And it was his right, his right glory glorifies the Father. When Jesus is in the right position, God is glorified. But it's even more than that. Thirdly, Christ's glory was earned at the price of the cross. See, in addition to the restoration of the glory which Jesus possessed prior to his incarnation, there's an additional glory that is earned, if you will, by his earthly life and ministry. And it might be language that we're uncomfortable with, that Jesus would earn this, but it is to say that there is something that was accomplished and added to the person of Christ on the cross. It is not that it was absent from him before, but it was accomplished and therefore given as a result. He had glorified the Father by his earthly life of obedience and submission. And he was glorified along with the Father through the salvation of men through his work on the cross. It's because of Christ's willingness to set aside the glory that was rightfully his in order to save sinful man, right? You and I, that the Father gave him even greater glory. This is a really cool picture of what's happening in the life of Jesus. And it shows this unique relationship between him and the Father. And, and I don't claim to kind of fully understand how this works. But what we know is that his glory was set aside. And that when he accomplished his will on the cross, then even greater glory came to Christ and, and as a result to the Father. And so for you and I, I think it's worth for us to consider this. Is that when we... Uh, oftentimes try to strive for our own honor, for, for, for our own sort of credit. And, and, and in that way, we think that we have a right to a certain amount of glory as individuals. And maybe at times we do. But when we have the right to glory and willfully set it aside, then there is even greater glory. You know that this is true in relationships. This is true in marriage, that when we have the right, right, I know that I'm right, and we set that aside, that there is greater glory to be given. We, we see this in sports. Tonight is the Super Bowl. We see this all the time in sports, right, where you have individuals, and if they're all about themselves and their own numbers and their own accomplishments, 
They might really succeed in a certain respect, but oftentimes it's done at the cost of the team. But when individuals are willing to set aside aspects of their glory, right, aspects of their own individuality for the sake of the team, then there is a greater glory. There's a greater good that is seen. And we're going to see that tonight, that there is going to be one team that is left standing, and there is going to be a greater glory for that group out of this season. It's a greater glory that we see in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 continues on in verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. Right? That's not just a fun thing that they tack on at the end of the verse so that it ends in kind of a nice way. It actually means that it is for the purpose of glory for the Father. The Christian life is a life of suffering and it's a life of glory. It's not simply that we suffer. And, and, you know, this grim determination. And, you know, in the end, when it's all over, we'll just suffer through. And then in the end, we'll receive glory later. No, the Christian life is an abundant life. It is filled with joy and peace. But nevertheless, there are trials and persecution and suffering that are inseparable from the Christian experience. And in times of difficulty, our faith is deepened, our, our fellowship with God is enriched, and we experience a deep joy in the most difficult times. In suffering and adversity, we come to appreciate God as our great reward in addition to being our rewarder. When all of our human resources have been spent, we find our sufficiency in Christ alone. Amen? 2 Corinthians 1 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, I think about this a little bit, and it's kind of like sweet and salty. Anybody like sweet and salty? Maybe like, like the trail mix, you know, that has the nuts and the M&Ms in it. Or maybe some of you, how many of you like the pretzels that are dipped in chocolate? Some of you guys like those, right? There's something about sweet and salty that is just a real blessing, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I think that's fair. <clears throat> it's all subjective, I guess. But here's the thing. The same thing is true in our Christian life. We should not only say that Christian suffering, suffering leads to glory, but that in many cases, suffering is glory. The Christian life is a mixture of bitter and sweet. We have a good measure of life's blessings and pleasures and fulfillments. But there are also the bitter experiences of suffering and sorrow. And God blends the bitter and the sweet in such a way to bring about glory for his good. His glory is the blending of our suffering and the blessing of our lives. So listen to this. You need God's suffering in your life as much as you need his blessing because it achieves a greater glory. Suffering is not, only, is not the only way to bring God glory either. 
Jesus glorified the Father but with his words and his works by revealing him to mankind. We glorify God by faith in him and our obedience to his word. And so maybe a question for us is, are you willing to live for the glory of God? And likewise, are you willing to die for the glory of God? And so Jesus prays this prayer for himself. And after praying for his own glory, now he turns his attention to the disciples. Why? Because it is in them that he has been glorified. We'll see that in verse 10. And really, we see two parts. One is an aspect of justification, what it is that saves them, and then an aspect of sanctification. The first we see is the certainty of his name. It is certainty, right? Have you heard this before? Absolute certainty in what? In the name of Jesus Christ. Look in verses 6 through 12. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am glorified in them. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There is a certainty in the name. So think about this. Why would Jesus, he just spent days, hours, teaching the disciples. Why would he pray for them? Why would he take time to pray for the disciples? Well, let me share a couple of observations. One is that he accomplishes his early task of revealing the Father to the disciples. That was his task. That was his mission. It was the will of the Father. And note how positively the faith of the disciples is stated. We know, right, from the last chapter, the last time that we looked in John, John chapter 16, that they had entered into what we called a new position. It was a new place of faith and understanding about who Jesus was, where he had come from, and where he was going. And Jesus confirmed this statement of faith by the disciples. He honors their faith in that way. The disciples had been given the revelation of the Father's name. And God had many names, right? Yahweh, Jehovah, I am. But the Father was revealed by name through Jesus. How? Through the nature of Jesus. The nature of Jesus reveals the name of the Father. When Jesus is called the bread of life or the light of the world or the good shepherd or on and on and on, it is the revelation of Jesus, of the Father, in his nature that is representative of who the Father is. So who we see Jesus was and is in Scripture is a reflection of the name of the Father. And this is what he was revealing. But even more than that, Jesus assumed 
the consummation of his ministry in the work on the cross. The prayer of Jesus is based on the name which the Father had given him. Remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, we're told that as a result of his humiliation and obedience to death, the Father gave him a name above every other name. The name of Jesus. What does Jesus mean? He will save his people from sin. The name was given on the basis of future fulfillment of the redemption that would be found on the cross and is the basis of the prayer for the disciples. So now get this. The work of what Jesus did on the cross becomes the basis of the prayer that Jesus has for our future. That God's work on the cross is the underlining foundation of everything that he desires for you and I. And how do we see this even more? It is that Jesus prayed, and he prayed a prayer that was based on a fact of those for whom he was praying that they were true believers. He once again, just like he did at the end of chapter 16, now in his prayer, he confirms the faith. He acknowledges the faith of the disciples. The disciples were believers because they belonged to the Father and were given to the Son. They were believers because they came to faith in the person of Jesus Christ as the one sent from God. So the emphasis on this whole section is on the certainty of the believer, the security, the safety of the believer, the absolute certainty of our salvation that is found in the name of the Father in the name of Jesus. God keeps his own. So our safety then, our security, our certainty depends on the nature of God, not our own character and conduct. Amen? It is not kept on our character and conduct, but the nature of God. While on earth Jesus kept the disciples, he says, in your name, if he was able to keep the disciples, keep in mind, he had limited glory, he had set aside a portion of his glory, and he was able to keep the disciples, how much more is he able to keep you and I when he is fully glorified in heaven? Our certainty, our security, it rests in the fact that we are here to glorify him. With all of our failures and our faults, the disciples still received word of encouragement. The disciples were filled with failures and faults. And Jesus said, I am glorified in them. So think about this in all of ours, all of our failures, all of our faults. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we depend on the work of the cross, he is glorified in us despite our failures and faults. Would it bring glory to God if one of his own who trusted in the Savior did not make it to heaven? Of course not. We have security and certainty for many reasons. Think about this. Your security in Christ is found in the nature of God. Your security in Christ is found in the nature of salvation itself. Your security in Christ is found in the glory of God. And your security in Christ is found in the intercessory ministry of Christ that continues through the power of this Holy Spirit to seal and to hold onto you. It is a permanent justification that leads us to confidence and certainty, absolute certainty. 
But he shifts even a little bit beyond that in the next section here. And we see that he moves to kind of the maturity of the disciples. And in this, we see the sanctity that is found in the word. Verses 13 through 19 says this. It says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Think about that for just a second. That they may have my joy fulfilled, fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I read a story about an interview one time. And at the end of the interview, a person from Human Resources who was speaking to an engineering graduate asked them uh, what you know, what they, they're starting, what starting salary they would be looking for. And of course, the engineer got all excited and said, well, I'd like to see something in the neighborhood of $125,000 with some benefits as well. And uh, the interview added, well, what would you say to a package of five weeks of vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, um, a company matching retirement funds at 25% of your salary, and a new company car every year? And then the engineer's eyes, of course, were wide open, and he shouted out, wow, are you kidding? And the interviewer said, matter-of-factly, yeah, but you started it. <laughs> I think sometimes you know this, that we know that what we hear is just too good to be true. But consider the statement that Jesus makes here, that the disciples may have the full measure of his joy within them. That's a pretty amazing and profound statement. But what allows him to state this? Look in verse 14. It says, I have given them your word. That is the enabling element of the joy that is fulfilled in our lives, is the word of God. It sanctifies us. It allows us, you know, we're separated when we come to Christ. We are sanctified in the, part, in the sense that we are set apart. But we continue in the process of sanctification as we continue to be sanctified. We continue to be set apart. We continue to grow and mature in Christ. And so we see, let me just share with you, different ways that the word sanctifies us. Uh, one is that the word gives us joy. Jesus spoke about joy in John 16, 20 through 24. He explained that joy comes by transformation, not substitution. It's not the changing of our circumstances. It's the transformation of our attitude and our perspective. Joy comes from answers to prayer or alignment with the will of God. But here he makes it clear that joy also comes from the word of God. So joy is found when our eyes are on the word and not the world. Right, That when our eyes are on the world, then we are full of distraction and fear. But when our eyes are on the word of God, then we are filled with joy. I, I want to share with you just a quick picture, just to sort of think about this a little bit. Now, am I behind or I missed the picture? Maybe I've got the picture in the wrong spot. Here's the picture. I had it in the wrong spot. That's my fault. 
So here's a picture. So when you look at this picture, what do you see? There's a lot of things maybe, but there's a couple of specific things that you can see. You can see a little girl, and if you look up into the corner there, you can see a plane. And so here's the thing that I would ask when you look at this picture is what is bigger, the girl or the plane? So in some perspective, right, you might look at that picture and you might say, well, the girl is bigger in the picture than the plane is. But what do we all know? We know that it's a matter of not just perspective, but it's a matter of position, right? And that the position of the girl is, appears to be bigger, right, because we're closer to the little girl in the picture than we are the plane. And as a result of being closer to the little girl, the girl looks bigger than the plane does. Now listen to this for just a second. Sometimes there are things that happen in our lives that seem so big. We have fears and circumstances and problems in our lives that just seem so big. And in the midst of living in those fears and being so close to those fears, we think that God is far away. We think that God is somehow distanced, that he is too small to be able to actually work and move in my problems and in my circumstances. But the issue is not that God is too small. It is that we are too far away from God and we are too close to our fears and our problems. But if we move close to God, then what happens is that God positionally takes his rightful place in our lives. And he is bigger than the problems and the fears that we face. Just like the reality is, that plane is much bigger than the little girl. See, God is much bigger than your problems and your fears. But you have to figure out your position. Because if you're living in that fear and in that problem, you are so close, you will think that God is far away, that he is too small to handle that problem. But the reality is, is that through his word, as you move closer to him, you will discover that God is far big enough to deal with any problem or fear that you have in your life. The word gives us joy. You already saw the second one. The word assures us of his love. The world will hate us, and we are to battle this hate with God's own love, a love imparted to us by the Spirit through the Word. The Word reveals what the world is really like, and the Word exposes the world's deceptions and dangers. You've heard this before. D.L. Moody used to write in the front of his Bible, in the front cover, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. It's really true. Thirdly, the word sanctifies us and that it gives us God's power for holy living. God's desire is that we would be sanctified through his word. That means that we would practice holy living to the glory of God. True sanctification, being set apart for God, comes through the ministry of the word of God. When we are saved, we're set apart. But as we grow and we mature in our faith... And we are, then we are more and more experiencing sanctification. The word of God, basically, it boils down to this. The word of God allows us to love sin less and to love God more. That's really what sanctification is, is that we ought to love sin less. Why? Because we love sin. We love it. We love it. But when we're in God's word and we become sanctified by his word, we love sin less and we love God more we want to serve him to be a blessing to others 
with the mind, we need to learn God's truth through his word. With the heart, we love God's truth, that is his son. And with the will, we yield to the spirit and we live God's truth out every day, day by day. And it takes all three to have a balanced experience of sanctification. And then lastly, the word gives us what we need for service as witnesses. Sanctification is not for the purpose of selfish enjoyment or personal boasting. It is so that we might represent Christ to the world around us and to win others to him. Jesus set himself apart for us and now he has set us apart for him. The father sent him into the world and now he sends us into the world. As we trust in the Lord and we devote our hearts to do his will, then we can live holy and blameless lives in the midst of a sinful world. And so Jesus encourages the disciples because as he's passing this on, this would be the disciples. They would be the ones to put together the, the words of Christ that are found in the New Testament. They would be the ones that would launch the church. And so now Jesus, with that in mind, right, the disciples have been commissioned. They're going to launch this church, this, this new age of believers, post-resurrection. And so now Jesus turns his attention to the last section. And it is a section that includes you and I, future believers. And it is a future of unity. Look at verses 20 through 26. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory, listen to this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made them known, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So there's a lot of like relationship stuff that's going on here, right? In him and you and me and I'm in you and we're all in it together. This is the vision of the church. And so what, what are we talking about? Well, I think that there is uh, you, there's specific applications for us as believers, obviously, here today and for us as a community of believers. But one is uniqueness and oneness. Now think about this. God created each person with uniqueness. You have been created with uniqueness. You've been created with uniqueness in your fingerprints, right? You've been created with uniqueness in your DNA. God has made each of us so totally different from one another. And yet, Jesus prays to the Father and closes by praying for oneness, among all those who follow him. We have a uniqueness of identity, but we have a oneness in our faith. 
We all look different. We all are individuals. We, we have all have our own walk with Christ and our own relationship with Christ. We have, all have our own faith journey and faith experiences. But God brings us together, not out of, out of our uniqueness, into oneness. Uh, what does that look like? Well, it starts because there is this acknowledgement, right, that we have differences, and so part of it is unity over discord and division, right? The disciples had their issues. They had tensions of power. Remember James and John, they were jockeying for positions to be at the right and left of Christ. No doubt there were other tensions when you think about simple things like Matthew was a Jew who was working for Rome as a tax collector, and Peter was a zealot who basically took a pledge to kill people like Matthew. God brought them together from all different backgrounds in all different places and God brought them together. The disciples exhibited a spirit of selfishness and competitiveness and disunity and Jesus calls them out of discord and division and into unity and that unity was based on what? It was based on Jesus. They didn't all get together because they were all fishermen. They didn't all get together because they were all tax collectors. They all got together because they believed and followed the person of Jesus Christ. It was his work and his glory that they were pursuing. You know, we're very different, and we gather together here, but we gather together, why? Because we all agree on everything? No. If you think that, talk to someone, right? <laughs> we gather together because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And each more Sunday morning, we show up because we believe that he is worth praise and worship and adoration. And so we do it together. It's not about music. It's not about what we wear. It's not even about what version of the Bible you use. It's about a common shared belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And if we cannot find unity in that, then as a church, we will never be effective. It will never happen. You will not be effective as a local body if we cannot find unity in the commonality of Jesus Christ. We'll have no power, no giftedness, no strength, no influence in our culture without unity. Well, that seems like a doomed message, doesn't it? Because we can't. We can't achieve unity on ourselves. And so what else do we have? Well, God knew this. And so obviously he sent us the helper. He sent us the spirit because unity is found in the spirit. It is what empowers us. Because we, in and of ourselves, are naturally, we will regress to what divides us. That's what will naturally happen. And so we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian harmony is not based on externals. It's based on internals, or, or, or maybe you might even say eternals, of the spirit and the inner person merged together. We need to receive unity, not just by working hard at it, but from God's spirit. Listen, unity can never be brought about by the organization of a church. We can't just organize church unity. We can't just say, hey, we're just going to have a seminar on unity. You all should come, and then that's going to solve all the issues from now until the end of time. Right? That's not how it works. 
It must be powered by the Spirit. This is the problem that we see in our culture, is there's all these issues of division in our culture. And there's all these well-meaning things that, you know, certain things that should be done, can be done to seek unity. But what's going to happen is that it's temporary because in the end, unity cannot be fully realized without the power of the Holy Spirit. What people need more than anything else in this world is not advice or certain leanings one way or the other. They don't need to be told how to think or how to vote or how to do different things. People need Christ. That's what they need. Now, I'm not saying those conversations should never happen. Those encouragements should never happen. There's a time and place for everything. But that is the root of it, is that it needs the Spirit of God. And then lastly, there is unity in message. And so we see these things, right? There's uniqueness, but there is oneness. And we have differences. And so there is this division that unity has to overcome the division, the natural division between us. And we need the Spirit of God to enable that, to empower that. And so what happens when the Spirit of God comes into the body of Christ and empowers our message? Well, the church that is identified in the Spirit will be unified in message. And that church that is unified in message will be the church that bears the fruit that glorifies God. When we're unified, we will have a unified message to the world. And when we have a unified message to the world, God is glorified. God's glorified. Let me share this hopefully quickly here in what it is in the message. And these four points are all right out of John 17 because it really is a repetition but four ways that we are unified in our message. Number one is transcendence. That is simply to say the revelation of God's glory. People are looking for a reality of God. While modern, modern, modernity, modernity suggested, right, that rationalism was eventually going to wash away, uh, you know, modern day religion. But postmodern world has proved just the opposite. Spiritual interest is everywhere today. And people will exercise it, whether it's in a church or whether it's in a mosque or whether it's in a New Age temple or whatever. People are not coming home to God, but they are seeking places where God seems present, where he can be felt and experienced. People want that. And Jesus prays that they will experience the indwelling of God brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a message about the name of God, about being indwelt by God, experiencing the glory of God, walking in the holiness of God, and being filled with the joy of God. This is what humanity is seeking today, and it is found in the name of Jesus. So we have a unity in the revelation of God's glory. We also have a unity in teaching the sanctity of the word, right? Religious endeavors, right? Religious quests, must be anchored in truth. There are many false paths, many charlatans. The church must give guidance. It must anchor its experiences in the word of God given historically in the person of Jesus Christ. We must be anchored in God's word. It's not like on a Sunday morning, we're hoping that you'll just come in here and have these feel-good experiences so that when you leave, you'll feel better for a couple of hours. It's the idea that when you come in here, that you will be exposed and hear the word of God, that it will sanctify your hearts so that when we leave, we will leave in a sanctified, empowered spirit that will live out in the joy of Jesus Christ. The church must be faithful in the teaching and holding to sound doctrine. 
into the godly spirit-led application of the teaching. It's one of the things I'm most thankful for Riverside for. Thirdly, the unity of message is a unity in fellowship. Not only people looking are people looking for transcendent spiritual experiences and sound instruction, but they're looking for community. People feel alienated and lonely and disconnected from places of worship. Tracing the themes of unity throughout the chapter, we see how much this subject weighs on the heart of Jesus. People live together in the name of Christ, and then in his name, they contend for every manner of special interests. This is why Jesus keeps repeating his commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that his followers would love one another. Without a heroic love that is similar to Jesus' love, unity is impossible. The oneness that we experience with Jesus ought to be the oneness that we experience with one another. We have been given the glory of God for the purposes of oneness. And that leads us to the last one, which is mission. Sorry, I don't even know where I'm at. It's mission. The church possesses a mission, a cause. Just as Jesus had a mission in the world, the unity of the church and the quality of its life and experiences lead not only to the glory of God, but to a powerful testimony in the world. We see this in verse 23. Christians do the work of Christ in the world. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are bringing the kingdom to reality wherever we go. Being unified as a church does not mean that we are isolated from the world. We do not want to lose the ability to connect with those who are unbelievers in the world. At times, the church, I believe, has lost a common language with unbelievers, with secular unbelievers, and it leaves them feeling uncomfortable. It's not our job to make them comfortable, but we want to engage in a way that allows them to see the glory of God, to experience the love of Christ, and to know the power of his spirit. And so Christians must be careful to discern the proper boundaries between purity and holiness while still participating in the mission of witness to the world. And so these qualities of the church's life, transcendence, teaching, fellowship, and mission, outline the essential things that were on Jesus' heart, that we would seek the things that Jesus desires to see within his church. And so one way you could say it, and hopefully you kind of agree with this, but this is one way to think about it. The church is to be an otherworldly community that experiences the supernatural God in power, that grounds itself in the word of God, that generates a family that nurtures its members and that understands what it is to do for Christ in the world. I hope that you can find some agreement there. I hope that we can find some elements of unity in that because I believe that that is the mission of the church. It's God's calling for us. And so as we close, I'm sure you're kind of all wondering what this is about. If you have crayons when you came in, you can pull these out for just a second. And I want to just think about this a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of a little goofy thing here, but you all have a box of crayons, and it's, if you don't, you can get one when you leave. But, there, you know, you each have a box of crayons. And in each box of crayons is what? <laughs> crayons. And there's different colors, right? The box that you have is four different colors. But here, here's the point, right? Is that I think in a lot of ways, church is a, lot, a little bit like a box of crayons. 
Crayons are different in color. We are different in use, but we are all part of the same box. As Christians, we may be different colors, physically or just in personality. We may have different views and different experiences, different worship style preferences, different ministry and even life approaches. Some of us are older, some of us are younger. Some of us are older in faith, some of us are newer in our faith. And so just like, you know, I have some old crayons too here. Some of these, this box actually used to, you know, belong to my grandpa and he gave it to my daughter. But some of these are, are, they're worn down. Some of them are broken. Some of them, the wrappers have peeled off and they've kind of come off and they're depleted. The, The same thing is true of you and I as well. Believers show evidence of suffering and pain, but all the crayons have their place and they fit in the box. They all serve the same general purpose and they were created for the same reason. But, but notice this, is that the purpose of the crayon is not to be in the box, right? The purpose of the crayon is to come out of the box and to be used in a way that God has individually and uniquely and specifically designed it to be used. But at the same time, there is oneness because there is identity and belonging in the box. And so this is the purpose. And the purpose gives us value because we have a creator, right? It's not just that we have an owner that uses us, but we have a creator that loves us. And so think about this. You can take this home and you can throw it away or give it to some kid or you can stick it somewhere as a reminder that you have, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have identity and belonging. And we are all in this together, that we are all part of this box of Christianity. And inside, God has uniquely gifted each one of us. And he desires, he's missioned us, commissioned us to go out into the world and be witnesses. But don't lose sight of who is orchestrating your actions and where your identity and belonging is. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word once again. And God, we thank you for the prayer of Jesus. And we thank you for, um, God, just the glory of Jesus Christ that is found through the cross. And God, we thank you for the disciples who faithfully uh, testified to their witness of Jesus and recorded the events of Jesus and uh, wrote down uh, the principles that Jesus had taught, inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we could be sanctified through the word. And God, thank you that you have established this institution of the church. We're so grateful for church, not for buildings, and we're not even just grateful for structures, leadership structures, or whatever it might be. But God, we're thankful for the people of God. God, we are thankful that despite our differences, that you have called us to oneness in Jesus Christ. And God, may that power of oneness be a reflection of your love that is unique and eye-opening to the world around us. God, we don't want to be divided internally the way the world is divided and therefore look no different. God, we want to be set apart. We want to be a testimony in the world, but God, to have a testimony that shows the love of Christ exhibited through the oneness 
of his church, of his people. And so, God, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. But, God, we thank you for what you are doing and want to do in our church. And we thank you for Riverside, who is committed to uniqueness and oneness. Riverside is committed to the teaching, faithful teaching of your word. We're committed to the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. And we're committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we thank you that we have a history here of commitment and unity to Jesus Christ. And God, may that continue in our lives, in our church, and in our community, and in our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.